Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Our scripture this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, page 940 in your pew Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Amen. Good morning. Isn't it fun to worship God? It is so super fun. And I appreciate that so very much. And I hope you do too. Kids, I hope you think it's fun to worship God. And if you don't yet think it's fun, just stick around for a little while because as you learn a little bit more about all the wonderful things that God has done for you, you will understand like the rest of us older kids and grown-ups do. That God has done so much and to be able to come together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and other friends that love Jesus and praise Him and pray together and hear from His Word, man, that is just one of the best things in the world. I love it so much. We have been talking about Jesus, the Son of God. We are continuing our thoughts about that today. I want to begin with a little opening narrative, and I have put this on the screen. And so you'll be able to read it along with me if you like, but if you want to just close your eyes and listen, that would be fine too. Uh, But I want to, to put us in a certain place in order to think about this next section of our series. So... First of all, let's start with this idea, and I want you to let it sink in and really go through this thought process with me just for a moment. There's something worshipful within us. We're made in the likeness of deity. The ancients who were dispersed across the earth after the incident of the Tower of Babel understood this, but they did not understand what they were to do with it. And as Romans 1 reveals, they turned from the knowledge of the true God and they served and they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And all forms of idolatry idolatry flowed from that most basic and most grievous of sins. And today, self-worship is still the fundamental human sin. And all other sins flow from that. And so continuing the thought, and it's not because there's nothing especially divine about us. Because there is. The truth is the divine within us is the reason we're capable of intentional worship to begin with. 
the divinity that is within us, the stamp of God's nature, us being made in his image, is a signpost from God intended to lead us to worship him. We recognize some qualities of our Father in us, but cannot deny that the divine within us is, at best, imperfect. And by worshiping the perfect example of divinity, we were and are made able to grow up into his image as he intends. This is part of the big picture purpose that God has for us in calling us to worship him. Failing to understand this somewhat complicated truth, the greatest of the ancients proclaimed themselves to be God kings, human beings who were thought by their followers to be vessels for some god or another uh, to live in and through. And I, I put an asterisk there because we're going to come back to this thought before we're done today. They claimed to be the sons of whatever deity their culture most highly revered. They were seriously mistaken in their pride, but it's not that they were wrong for thinking that uh, deity could dwell within human flesh. Today, true worshipers do worship one creature, but it's complicated. It's right to worship the divine within creation, but to be clear, we never worship the created itself. The presence of divinity in creation is the call for the created of divine origin to worship that which alone is truly worthy, true, original, eternal, perfect deity. In other words, the one God. We worship the one God of gods only, and in the person of Jesus, that God has taken up residence within the creature. And that has shown us that what the ancients were looking for, but failed to find, and what people today are seeking, but fail to understand. We'll come back to these thoughts in just a moment. But this truth can only begun, uh, begin to be understood can only be begun to be understood by those who sincerely make the good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And bear with me please this morning because this clicker is worshiping Satan presently. So we come to the third question in our series, Jesus is the Son of God. And this question is how do we deal with the objections of unbelievers? We started this last week by talking about the objections of those that do not believe in any kind of supernatural at all. In other words, those that claim to be atheists or agnostics and they just don't believe in anything supernatural. So they say, well, Jesus can't actually be the Son of God because they deny there's a God. We talked about that last week. If you'd like to look into that more, you can find that sermon on our YouTube uh, channel or on Facebook. Uh, today, we're going to turn to some different bases of objections to the good confession, to the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. There are three kinds of objections, of course, and the second kind is this. How dare you say there's more than one God, some might object, or they might say, how dare you say your God is the only one? In other words, we have some folks that are strict, what we might call one-person monotheists. In other words, they say, yes, there's one God, and that one God is only one person. And how dare you say there's a trinity? And so they would say Jesus cannot be God being a man because there's only one person in the Godhead, that sort of thing. And then, of course, there are polytheists, and, you know, we don't think of them very often in America today, but there's a, uh, what we would call a, a neo-paganism movement that's been going on now for decades where we do have some neighbors in our country today that worship a multiplicity of gods, lowercase g. And certainly across the world today, there are many places in the world where multiple deities are worshipped in a polytheistic fashion. 
And so they would say, how dare you say that your God is the only one? Because I believe that my gods, they're gods too. And how dare you say something like that? And so today we're going to focus on uh, that uh, latter group. Uh, the, we're going to focus on the religious pluralists who say, how dare you say your God is the only one? And of course, polytheists, pagans would say this, but there are also those who just believe that you shouldn't say that anything about religion is objectively true. They would say it's perfectly fine for you to believe that there's only one God and for you to worship him the way that you see fit according to the Bible, but how dare you say that someone who worships some other God or some other group of gods is wrong? They would say that's bigoted, that's judgmental. How dare you tell somebody else that their personal religious beliefs fall short of the truth? Well, if Jesus is the Son of God, my friends, listen. If Jesus is the Son of God, then all other gods are proven to be false. It's not a matter of bigotry. It's not a matter of arrogance. It's not a matter of, uh, of us just deciding that this thing that we believe with, without evidence or something like that is superior to what somebody else believes without evidence. And folks that, that, that are religious pluralists, that's in essence the claim that they're making. But the point that we've been making now for the past weeks in pursuing this series this year is that we're not just talking about a matter of opinion that doesn't have evidence to support it. We're talking about a truth that cannot be seen with our eyes. We walk by faith and not by sight. But it is a truth that can be examined and understood in our minds. There is evidence in the form of credible testimony as well as the witness of nature we talked about last week that lead us in the direction of Jesus. And it is our contention that if you follow the trail of evidence that God has given us in this life, both in nature and in his revealed word, it will prove that Jesus is in fact God being a man. And that being proven, it says something necessarily critical about all other supposed religions. And there simply is no avoiding that truth. So let's talk about this together for a few minutes. In a symbolic sense, the Bible story from Genesis to the Gospels at least is the record of how the true God defeated all the false gods and proved his ownership of their portfolios. All right? Now, I don't mean their investment packages and uh, their 401ks and all that kind of stuff when I say their portfolios. But these gods, any polytheistic system looks at, at a god, say, as the sun god. And this god has control over the sun. Or folks in ancient uh, Palestine believed that there were gods of certain territories. There were gods that were powerful in the mountains, and there were gods that were powerful in the valleys. And of course, the Greek old Roman pantheons had gods for wine and gods for music and gods for everything that people might think of enjoying in life. And they saw each of these gods, lowercase g, as having a certain sphere of power in a portfolio over a certain individual thing that they ruled. But, but they didn't have authority over some other god's portfolio, and that's the way that they viewed things. So the Bible story shows God, the one true and living God, exposing the falseness of all of these other gods and demonstrating time after time after time, generation after generation, that he actually owned those portfolios that uh, idol worshipers uh, supposedly attributed power to, to these other gods. He showed that they're not the god of this at all. I am. 
And ultimately, this work was finished and completed and made perfect in Jesus. So God has done three things in order to prove that he is the only God and his son is legitimate God being a man. And the first thing that he's done is he has exposed the powerlessness of all other so-called gods. Now, I hope you're familiar with the contest on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. Verses 26 and 29, we read this excerpt from that uh, particular story in Scripture. And they took, this, this would be the prophets and priests of Baal, of Baal, the false god of the Canaanites, who was believed to control uh, the weather and fertility and the productivity of crops and so forth. And, and thus, uh, well, we won't go into that in any greater detail. 1 Kings 18, 26 and 29. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, O oh, Baal, uh, hold on, I lost my place, my screen blacked out, it's blacking out on and off. Again, the devil is against me today, brothers and sisters, so, you know, pray against him, please, and let's continue on with the lesson, all right? The name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And listen, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. Notice how this passage concludes. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now you know, if you know the Bible story, how it ended. Once they were finally through with their great big show of piety, trying to get Baal to wake up and listen to them or get off the toilet and, again, relieving himself, that's what Elijah was saying he's got to get out of the bathroom and then he'll answer your prayer that's his claim so as they got through waiting for Baal to finally listen and of course he never did because there is no such God as Baal then you know Elijah told them to soak his altar to fill up the trench he dug around it with water and God sent fire from heaven that consumed not only the animal that was to be offered on the altar, but it actually burned up all the water in the trench around it. And then, of course, it was revealed to Israel who God really was. And ultimately, though, the power that has proven God to be the one God and Jesus to be his son is the empty tomb. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. There is no God that has ever raised a son up to be or his representative to give his light and his love and his teachings to the world other than Jehovah God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And there is no God that has been able to raise up his servant from the dead and to establish him at his right hand with eternal life. There is no God other than the God who has given his son the kingship over the universe. And the empty tomb proves that his God, that the God of Jesus, our God and Father as well, is the only God. The second thing God has done over the course of his unfolding plan over the centuries we read about in the Bible is he exposed the ridiculousness of idolatry, just the ridiculousness of it. 
we read in the book of Isaiah chapter 44, verses 14 through 17, these words, God uh, helping the people reading Isaiah to realize how silly it was for them to worship idols. He talks about a man. A man plants a cedar and the rain makes it grow. A man uses it to make a fire. He takes some of it and warms himself. Yes, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. Then he makes a god and worships, worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of it, half of the wood, he burns in the fire. Over that half, he cooks meat. He roasts a meal and fills himself. Yes, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm as I look at the fire. I, I, love, I love the internal voice, the, the thought process that, that God through Isaiah gives us of this man's mindset. Ah, I've made a fire and I'm warming myself. And oh, I'm full. I got a nice full belly. I'm warm as I look at the fire. With the rest of it, he makes a God, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it saying, rescue me for you are my God. Now, this is supposed to be a comical depiction of idolatry. And it is a comical picture of idolatry. You, you notice who the godlike figure is in the story. The godlike figure is the man. The man plants a cedar. The cedar is subject to him, beneath him, less than him. He plants a cedar, fertilizes it, waters it, raises up this cedar. And when the time comes, he cuts down this cedar tree and he, and he cuts it into pieces. He's going to use half of it for his firewood, but, but the other half he's going to carve into an idol. And so this man, who is the superior acting agent in all of this scenario, cuts down that which is utterly in, inferior to him, and he is able to recognize that this material that I have now in my hands is, is no more important than to chop up and burn up in a fire in order to warm me. But he cannot see how foolish it is to then think that he could carve the other half of that firework or that firewood into the shape of a man or a woman or some beast or some object and then bow down to it as if that idol were somehow holier than him, superior to him. And if you read the greater context here of Isaiah 44, you will see that the context further mocks how foolish this is and ends with God saying, in essence, that these idols cannot do anything for you. These chunks of wood don't hear, they don't see, they don't speak, they cannot walk, they cannot act, and it is vain to worship them. And God says, turn to me and I will rescue you. Again, God has shown the utter foolishness of bowing down to idols of wood and stone and precious metals. But ultimately, again, the greatest answer to idolatry, the last nail in its coffin in God's great scheme of redemption is sending his son. And Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, we see in a symbolic sense, the Bible story from Genesis to the Gospels is the record of how the true God defeated all the false gods and proved his ownership of their portfolios. He did that finally by exposing them to open shame. And this is where I want us to look at two different places in our Bible. So if you do have your Bible or a Bible app or you're following along in the YouVersion app, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 21. The, the, the apostle writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? When we took communion just a few minutes ago, we, we communed with the blood of Christ. We, we took in the symbolic reference that to us through faith stands for the blood of Christ. And we were called to participate in the altar that shed that blood. The bread which we break, second half of verse 16. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? When we partook of the bread together, again, we partook of that which represents the body of Jesus and we're reminded that by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, literally of course, but, but spiritually, by taking in Jesus himself, who he is, the truth about him as our food and as our drink. In other words, what gives us life and what sustains our life and what gives us the hope for eternal life is not our own flesh and blood, but the flesh and blood of the Son of God who died and was raised from the dead in order to secure our salvation. And so when we partake of this bread and of the cup, Paul tells us here, we are participating in the altar upon which Christ offered himself. In other words, when we commune together, we are in fact participating in the cross in the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 17, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Verse 20, Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Where did the ancients get the idea of Baal? Where did, where did they get the idea of Moloch, the devourer of children? Where, where, did, where did they get the idea of Dagon and Set and On and where did they get the idea of Zeus and Poseidon? Where do folks get the idea of, of uh, Krishna? Where do people get the idea of these deities? Paul, in this context, tells us where they got the idea. They got the ideas from demons. Baal is a demon. Moloch is a demon. Krishna is a demon. Zeus is a demon. Odin is a demon. The gods of all the ancient Gentiles that turned away from the knowledge of the truth that they all had when they were one people at the Tower of Babel after the flood, but, but when they dispersed, much of that knowledge was perverted under the influence of demons. This is what Paul tells us. And this is the problem of participating in idolatrous worship. It is participating in the will and the work of demons. But I want you now to look at the book of Colossians, just a few pages over in your Bible. Colossians chapter 2, let's notice verses 8 through 15 here as we see what it says about Jesus. Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Beware, Paul writes, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Listen now to verse 9. For in him, that is in Christ Jesus, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
All the fullness of everything that God is and everything that God means and everything that God does, all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. Notice Paul writes this passage after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, is still an embodied human being. He is still fully man, fully humanity, being God, the second person of the Godhead at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 10, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. A lot of interpreters mistakenly interpret Colossians 2.14 as referring to the law of Moses. That is not, not true. Ephesians 2.15 does do what many people use Colossians 2.14 to do. But let me tell you what Colossians 2.14 actually means. You remember when Jesus was crucified and Pontius Pilate had to decide what he was going to write on a sign and nail to the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That was the charge against him. You see, when folks were crucified by the Romans in the ancient world, in most cases, the charge that had led to their condemnation was written on a plank or on some tablet or another, and it would be nailed to the cross above them so that people could see why this person was languishing in torment, being executed in the most excruciatingly painful way possible. And so what this passage says is that each one of us have a plaque like that. Are you listening? Each one of us have got a plaque like that, probably too big to fit on a cross, of the charges against us because of the sins that we have committed. God in Jesus took each one of our plaques and nailed it to his cross. That's what Colossians 2.14 means. And so we continue in verse 15. Listen to what that accomplished having disarmed principalities and powers. That is the evil spiritual forces, including all the demons loyal to Satan. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let me explain to you, brothers and sisters, what that means. As I said, Baal is a demon. As I said, Moloch is a demon, and Dagon a demon, and Zeus a demon, and Krishna a demon. All of these false gods are the result of demonic influence in the world of mankind. And I don't understand everything that happens in that world, the spiritual world unseen by mortal eye. But I know those demons wanted worship. They wanted to rule over mankind, to rule our hearts and rule our minds and create our worldviews and influence them according to their wills rather than God's will. And the only reason they were able to succeed was that they used our fear of death to control us. And today, everyone who is worshiping an idol, listen, listen, 
even if that idol is yourself. Everyone who is worshiping an idol today is doing so because the fear of death has shackled your mind. You're trying to find life. That's what folks are trying to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking life and wanting to be alive and wanting to have more life and richer life. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just that the demons cannot give it to you, nor do they care to, nor do they want to. Jesus on the cross took away, are you listening? Jesus on the cross took away the final portfolio, the final portfolio over which the enemy and all his forces had any rule, death itself. It was the last of the power of the demonic forces behind idolatry to fall to God's plan. It's interesting that parallel to that, it will be the last enemy that Jesus utterly destroys in his second coming, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus took on the death that these demonic powers held over our heads, and he took it to the cross. He who did not deserve it bore it for those of us who do. And by the power, by the authority that God gave him, we talked about that last week, Jesus laid down his life. He freely gave it. And then he took it up again. And when he did so, he proved that Zeus has no power. Saturn has no power. Baal has no power. Krishna has no power. None of these so-called gods are gods. They're demons. They're filth. They're evil. And all of their designs were exposed with the Son of God anguishing on the cross and rising from the dead. I talked about the ancient world. If you read about the worldview of the great empire of ancient Egypt, the pharaohs all counted themselves to be the sons of one or the other of the Egyptian gods, to be the avatar of that god, the, the very physical presence of that god living among those people and reigning over the land of the pyramids and of the sphinxes. If you'll look in, in the literature and see, the same idea was in ancient Babylon. You'll see the idea was even in ancient Rome. The Caesars were deified and there was a whole system of worshiping them as if they were the sons of the gods themselves. See, the ancients knew that human beings are, by means of creation, the sons and daughters of God. They knew that there is within us the spark of divinity, the image of our maker. But failing to understand what to do with that and what that meant for them and in their pride perverting the truth about God that they had formerly known, they decided that God could be a man in each one of them. The point I'm making is that the idea that God could be a man is not a bad idea. That idea was given somehow to them in the ancient world. It might even have been supplied to them by demons who having some greater insight into where God's plan was going decided maybe they could pervert it before it ever came to pass. I don't know. That's just conjecture. 
But somehow the ancient people knew that there was this idea that God could be a man. Maybe it was the original messianic prophecy of Genesis 3.15, I don't know. But in the ancient world, they understood the idea that God could become a man. They just, in their pride, got it wrong. And brothers and sisters, the person of Jesus has revealed that God can, in fact, be a man. But only one. He is the perfect image of our God. Why would we bow down to an idol when we have a better image? Four applications that I want you to take away as we remember those words in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14. Flee from idolatry. You know there are some sins that God tells you to fight. And then there are some sins that God tells you to run from. My beloved brothers and sisters, when God tells you to run, run. Because there is a power in idolatry, a draw. Idolatry has a draw that just penetrates to the depths of our souls, to that very spark of divinity within us. We know that there is God in us. It's designed to bring us to our knees to worship the one who is perfectly divine. Oh, but if we let this this superiority that is within us over everything else in creation go to our heads. Oh, and it's so easy to do. You don't have to use your firewood to carve an image and bow down to it to be worshiping idols. You can just put your will above God's will. You see how tempting that is? Paul says run from it. Run from it. The first commandment of the ten forbids crafting images of God to worship because all such images are counterfeit. God only has one true image. It is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the image before whom we all bow down and worship. And he's the only one. Number two, the only gods we need fear are those with actual power. If Zeus had power... I'd tell you to fear Zeus, but Jesus has already demonstrated the fact that Zeus is powerless. Don't fear him. Pagans could tell me that they're going to have some kind of ritual to curse my spirit or uh, that they're going to pray to their God to hinder my preaching of the gospel as they've done in lands that are dominated by heathenism today. Who cares? What can their gods do? No more than Baal could do when set at combat against Jehovah God. No more than that. Number three, Jesus' sufferings expose the links to which we, were tempted, uh, we, we are tempted to idolatry, and it offers us the better choice. Listen, brothers and sisters, man, if you don't remember anything else from this lesson today, remember this. Jesus is a better God than you. Than you or than me. Why would I worship me? When I have a better God to worship, I want to worship the best God, the real God, the true God, the God who has proven that he has power and love and that he listens to his people's prayer. That's the God I want to worship. You can't pray to me. If you pray to me, I'll never hear it and I can't do anything about it. The same thing is true for you. By the way, if you pray to yourself, you'll hear it. And you may be able to do something about it what it is that you're dreaming of or seeking or working toward. But listen, brothers and sisters, I'll tell you one thing you cannot do. 
And that is that you cannot stop death from interrupting your plans. So no matter how highly you may think of your go get it, you know, drive to succeed and your work ethic and your, and your, and your will to overcome, oh, you can be the strongest willed human being that has ever lived. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 is still in the Bible. And as it is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Remember we're told concerning Jesus that to him every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is a better God than you. And finally, number four, flee from idolatry. And as you do, run, my friend, run to the cross. Jesus is the Son of God, and he has proven that he is. And, and hearing the testimony of Jesus and understanding it and thinking about it shows us the powerlessness of, the ridiculousness of idolatry in all of its forms. And it also, it also offers us the image of the true God, a real God that hears our prayers and that works in our lives. Worship Jesus, the God that has proven himself to own the portfolio of every conceivable thing in this universe. This morning, if you've never made the good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you're of age, that is, if you're old enough that you know right from wrong, and you understand that you're accountable for your actions, and you realize that you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you need to make that good confession, and you need to decide to turn from your sins and embrace the will of God. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And out of the decision to confess and repent of your sins, you need to obey the commandment to be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. The water is ready behind me today. If you want to put Christ on in baptism and have your sins washed away, this is your opportunity. And this morning, if you're a baptized believer that needs the prayers of this church, the invitation is yours. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.